What's up, everybody? Welcome to Talk It Out Podcast. This is your girl, Gabby. Joy. And KT. And we're back with another episode. Thank you guys for listening to our last episode. Um, it's Society Too Sensitive. You can check that one out on SoundCloud.com slash Talk It Out. Uh, you know, you can listen to us also on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, um, wherever you can find a podcast as well as TIOPodcast.com slash episodes. Make sure to hit us up on social media. We have a Facebook at Talk It Out Podcast, an Instagram at Talk It Out Podcast, and a Twitter at Talk It Out underscore pod. Hit us up there. Let us know what you think about this episode because we have a very, very special guest coming all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Miss Wendy C. Thomas. Everybody clap it up for her. Miss um, <laughs> <laughs> Wendy, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about um, you know how you got into writing, a little bit about the work you've been doing in Memphis and uh, what you're doing as of now? Okay. Um, my name is Wendy Thomas. I am a, the editor and publisher of MLK50.com, which is a nonprofit um, reporting project it's time to the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death, and it's um, also focused on economic justice, which is uh, what brought him to Memphis mm-hmm. nearly 50 years ago. Um, I grew up here in Memphis, um, went to high school here. Uh, for 11 years, I was um, a columnist at the Daily Paper here, the Commercial Appeal. Mm-hmm. And when I joined the staff in 2003, I was the first black woman to write opinion for that paper. Mm. And I went to school for journalism um, at Butler University, and uh, yeah, this is what I've done since college, and I think being a journalist is probably the best job um, you can have, because where else do they pay you to like get in folks' business right? and ask questions <laughs> and that otherwise would be seen as rude? Um, yeah, so that's just a little about me, I guess. All right, and I first got introduced to you, um, man, like early of 2017. One of my Facebook friends had shared something that you posted on your Facebook. I can't remember if it was about, like, Black Lives Matters or protesting or economics or something like that. I don't know what it was, but I ended up following your Facebook page. And I was reading through your stuff, and I was like, oh, my gosh, somebody in Memphis is actually talking about structural and institutional problems that we have in Memphis without getting into respectability politics and religious dogma. Like, I was taken aback because I don't see that too much with um, what I what I see on um, as far as people talking about, you know, the crime in Memphis and, and stuff like that. So it was definitely a breath of fresh air, and I've been following you ever since, so... I, I really enjoy your work and the work that you do. Oh, well, I I appreciate that, but I don't want to, like, um, I guess I have, like, a bit of a confession. Okay. Um, me getting to where I set down respectability uh, politics was a process. Okay. I was in my attic the other day, and I was going through some old columns I wrote, uh-huh. and some of that stuff was trash. <laughs> I mean, it was really bad, and I uh-huh. cringe at... Um, you know, this is just some of the stuff that I was about, um, um, quote unquote, black names mm. and why people shouldn't. I mean, just trash, mm. just uh-huh. trash stuff. <laughs> but, you know, when you know better, um, you do better. That's true. And yeah. exactly. um, it's really interesting because when I did, when I wasn't, uh, um, you know, basically perpetuating stereotypes about 
black people. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found is that a lot of white readers loved me, loved me, mm-hmm. thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. But once my critiques, you know, shifted and I grew up, basically, I started looking at things from a structural, you know, systemic perspective. They couldn't stand me. And black mm. folks started to love me. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I think I, I hope I have um, partially redeemed myself from um, the sins of my um, early column writing career. Um, but I'm going to still work on that atonement because it was bad. <laughs> We've all had our journey. I definitely have had mine. So, ain't no judgment here. Yes, I just enjoy what has. you're doing. Girl, <laughs> I enjoy what you're doing now. I'll, I'll say that. All right. So, um, let's get into this conversation. We got a lot of interesting topics that we want to talk about today. Um, one of which is. Um, you know, we talk a lot about um, racism in America. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the H&M thing with the boy and the coolest mm-hmm. monkey in the jungle. That was a, a big thing on social media. Um, and we talk, you know, we see videos on social media about people being racist to black people and stuff like that. And a lot of times I think that is uh, the majority of the, the type of conversations we have about racism. But... um I want to know what you think about um, the role that economics plays in racial inequality and wealth inequality, especially in Memphis, because um, Memphis, I mean, we're we're not doing too hot as far as economically. And we have a, a high rate of poverty and in crime in the city. And a lot of people would attribute that to being, you know, you know, black people being lazy or whatever. But I, I want to hear what you think about um how economics plays a part in in the racial inequality that we have in Memphis uh, specifically? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So um, so economic um, inequality, you know, persists um, in Memphis and really anywhere because it's, um, it makes some people a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. um, that the poverty uh, it persists because it's um, because somebody profits from it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and this 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 country, and I think this is the kind of stuff that we really don't like talking about in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, I was actually talking to um, another journalist earlier today about um, you know MLK Day, and you know more specifically, you know the Grizzlies. You know they have you know, MLK uh, events and that sort of thing. And, you know, what was the role of um, sports and, you know, destroying or dismantling economic inequality. I mean, uh, uh, not economic inequality, but like racism. Um, And I don't think that it's ever going to really go away because, like I said, it's too too profitable. I mean, this country is, at its core, that's, it, it exists because of racism in a large large way. You take away the institution of chattel slavery and there is no America, right? And there's yeah. definitely no no wealth. Um, one of the stories that's on our, our site now, um, MLK50.com, got to get that plug in. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, is um, about a report by the Institute of um, Policy Studies out of D.C. And um, they estimate that, or they calculate, I should say, that um, for the black-white wealth gap to close, it would take 228 years. And so mm. that would mean that 
um, white families couldn't get a dime more in wealth, right? So you just hold them in place um, and you let black people catch up. So that's wow. like what, 11 generations? If you think of a generation as 20 years. Um, so yeah. essentially it's never, there's, it's never going to catch. We're never going to catch up. Um, not um, with things are the way, you know, with things the way they are now. Um, and that's a product of choices. I mean, conscious public policy choices. Um, you know, when I hear people say, uh, well, the system is broken, um, I have to like push back against that because the system isn't broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed right, to do. Right, right, right. Um, racism right. is so, like, if I was just studying it as a science, it's beautifully efficient, you know, mm-hmm. like how it replicates and perpetuates itself. Um, and I think core to that is that um, that economic exclusion, you know, that economic um, violence, really, I think is how you could you could frame it. Um, it keeps um, black people from fully participating, you know, you know, in all of society. So I get frustrated when people talk about, um, you know, things like, uh, oh, you know, um, can like MLK games and sports bring us together? And- <laughs> you know, help us know each other. I don't, you know, I really don't care fundamentally if you don't like me. Right? <laughs> but if economically we're equal, then this, then I'm good. Right? Yeah. You don't ever have to speak to me. I promise you. <laughs> so um, I have a question. Yeah. I, I, You said that you can't be equal and they're not financially equal and they're not be any racism. But do you think that for those black people who do make it and who are successful, do you see a trend? Because I don't, and it just may be me in my little bubble, but I, I don't see a trend of a princess, of them getting apprentices. You know how when, uh, what's the lady, Barbara uh, from The View? What's oh, the lady? Barbara Walters. Name? Yeah, Barbara Walters. Whoopi essentially took her place, but it, she was groomed by Barbara Walters. Mm, you don't yeah. see, uh, this is an example. You don't see any black people from what, from me, from my point of view, grooming another black person to take over their place. It's like they want to keep it for as long as they can. And when it go, when time runs out, what are we going to do? Who's going to be that next face? I feel like financially we could do much better if we help each other as a community right well i definitely believe in cooperative economics right and there's no mistaking that black people do have significant buying power um and um even though we're disproportionately poor um relatively poor comparatively poor Mm -hmm. um it's not to say that we don't have some resources um but again, I think it goes back to structural issues and systemic issues um, in the ways that we, uh, you know, the class keeps us from solidarity, you mm-hmm. know, honestly. Um, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, things were better, you know, back before integration. I'm not sure um, that would be necessarily true, but I can definitely see some advantages of having to support your own um, mm-hmm. businesses, you know, in your, in your neighborhood, um, yes. and having that economic diversity in the same neighborhood. Um, so yeah, I can see that. Now as for the issue of like kind of mentoring and bringing up, you know, the next generation, yes. you know, I'm sure I can look at people who do, who do, um, do that. 
Um, I can say, like in Memphis specifically, certainly from a political standpoint, there's been this kind of divide I see anyway between generations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our first elected black mayor was, you know, Willie Harrington. Um, you know, I used to, I would write him like Seabiscuit when I was at the paper. Some of it was deserved, <laughs> but some of it I could have been, um, could have been a lot e- a little easier on him. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the one thing I was to get, able to get him to agree with me on was that he had not um, lifted as he climbed, right? Mm. So there was, he couldn't exactly. turn around and say, these are the five people who I was a rainmaker for. Right? Mm. And so exactly. one of the things that I've really tr- been really intentional about in my pro- in my project is trying to create opportunities um, for young, uh, younger, less experienced women and people of color um, to well, where I can say, okay, I was looking out for them. Um, I'm trying to make introduction. Now, not everybody's receptive and that can be frustrating, but yes. I shouldn't expect people to always receive whatever I'm trying to give because maybe they don't want it. But um, yeah. But um, trying to be really intentional about that. Because I've had people who are rainmakers for me. Um, and so to be able to return that um, favor is, um, is a privilege. But I think it's something we can definitely be more intentional about. Yeah, I think we have to be taught that. Yeah, it's definitely um, because I, one of our episodes not too long ago, we talked about the um, article that stated or predicted by, you know, 2050 that, um, black net wealth would be like zero dollars and what that meant for us as millennials like growing up in you know we were pretty much raised in the recession we we were told that college was the the answer to get us good jobs and uh, you know I mean all of us have come back to Memphis and these great jobs we were promised like nobody no black people that I know that I graduated with college um, with no have one. gotten like these great salary jobs like most of us are working um maybe i mean nothing's wrong with education but most of us are working in education or, or warehouse retail. jobs or re- retail or something like that so i i do think if there is to be any type of change i mean we're you know they encourage us to work in politics and stuff like that but if there are already black people that are making it they're gonna have to help us some somehow because we can't do it by ourselves as far as yeah most people feel like when they have especially when you're dealing with racist people they have one black person oh this is enough i i I recently went to a job interview um for a fortune 100 company they Mm -hmm. were only interviewing black women when Mm -hmm. i asked them because as I'm going in, there are two more black women waiting to be interviewed. As I'm leaving, mm-hmm. there are three more coming in. So it's obvious they were looking for a type. However, when I went in, they were like, oh, well, we love you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I asked them a question I guess I wasn't supposed to ask. I asked them, I said, um, are you looking for a certain type of person? <laughs> uh... <laughs> because I guess I wasn't supposed to ask because he... Uh, he got really fidgety, um, mm-hmm. really weird. Um, and as I'm leaving, the guy who he was bringing in, who he brought in as his as his success person, um, said, "Yeah, they're looking for a black woman." But mm. The one we had quit. Ooh, the one we had quit. Oh my god, <laughs> the one we had quit. Wow, he really. Wow, that. that's crazy. He said, "He said it's great." If, but working here is really awesome, though. 
for him because he was a white male. Mm-hmm. However, the one they had quit. Oh my right. goodness. Wow. Well, let me say this. I, this is my theory. I have not tested this. Well, it's based on anecdotes, right? Anecdotes okay. on evidence. But this is my theory. So, um, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, black people who get into positions of power and why they may not um, do more to lift as they climb and bring somebody along. Sometimes I think the people who get plucked for those jobs, not always, but sometimes, have been plucked because they're not going to be um, a race man or a race woman, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're yes, not going to be um, a person that's coming in and asking the questions. You know, is yeah, you know, are y'all looking for this type of person, a certain type of person? Um, they're look. They're hired because they're gonna um, uphold the status quo, yeah. right? And so, if that's what um, employers are looking for, or people are looking, you know, bosses are looking for when they promote somebody, then it's like kind of no surprise that we don't have more um, upward mobility assisted by like people who you know have some authority. So, can we can we talk a little bit more about um, what are some of the contributing factors? For racial um, wealth inequality in in Memphis, I know we talked about, you know, the powers that be, they don't, or, you know, racist structures, they're not going to shake the table because it's working for them. And this country has been built on, you know, pretty much exploiting black labor and stuff like that. Um, Do you think there's any other contributing factors to this? The economic inequality and why it it persists. Mm -hmm. Mm. I guess besides the fact that again, you know, people, it's it's, it's a money maker, you know. Mm. Um, you know, I don't subscribe to the theory that um, um, black people need to work harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't subscribe to the theory that um, um, we just need more education. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't subscribe to that because there's no evidence for that. Um, now, I'm not saying that means just, like, drop out of school and you're going to be able to ball out. That's <laughs> um, but, you know, I am saying that if you look at the research by um, Derek Hamilton and uh, Sandy Darity, they wrote this great paper called um, Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain, right? Mm-hmm. So it's to counter this notion that um, if you just get more education, um, you'll be able to, you know, uh, assume your rightful, cla- you know, rightful place in the middle class. And what his research found, what their research found was that um, even with the same amount of education, um, black people, particularly black women, are going to be paid less um, for the same job, right? And so you're never able to close that income gap, um, and then that means you're never able to close the wealth gap, right? Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if that quite answers your question. but um, It does, it does. The whole thing is depressing. It is. Yeah, it really is. And it it discourages millennials, especially because I know that my generation, we're discouraged, but I feel like millennials are going to, are trying to keep pushing forward, are trying to keep making making something of themselves. However, the, uh, what's the generation after uh, millennials? Generation... That was uh, what they call Z's the new ones. Yeah, yeah, Generation uh, Z. That's what it's called. How my like, and this is the generation that my sister is in, my cousins, and 
all all of those younger people. And I found not just within my family, I found within my friends' family, within people who I don't necessarily talk to on a regular basis, that everybody that all of their younger siblings within that generation have a different work work ethic. They don't want to, they don't want the um salary job of office job. They want the work the they want to work the warehouse job because they're more interested in the now and in the I need to get paid now, I need to get this money now, or they're trying to be Instagram famous. And I don't know if it's just the people <laughs> who are yes, that apparently that's a thing. I did not know it was a thing. They're trying to be microwave babies and and make microwave money. And I don't know that that's quite possible. Hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm trying to trying to shed some light to them. But I guess interesting to hear y'all like talk about um, the generation after millennials. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I what I usually hear, and I'm old, but what I usually hear is people complaining about millennials. And so to hear uh-huh. millennials complaining about another generation, I'm like, well, day, like, <laughs> you know, we, I think- as older people act like they are about, you know, that's, yeah, this is good. This is, this is good for me to. I mean, <laughs> that's joy. I don't, I don't, I don't down the the younger generation because they're kind of in the same boat you. as us. I, I want to know why. I mean, we know we know that um, this economic system isn't working. We know that people ain't getting jobs. Why do you think people are still pushing for the children to to do certain things? Like they, maybe it's because they see us. We've gone to college, we've gotten these bachelors and these masters, and we're still over here working at Starbucks. Maybe they see that and they're like, well, I'm just going to go and work at this warehouse and, and not go to college I because I know, true. you know, maybe it's that. That's, that's what people have been telling me. Um, there is a guy that I know, he's about 19 years old, and he's considered Generation Z. Him and his, we have, we often have discussions, you know, I try to try to make them woke but apparently they're trying to get me woke okay um they tell me that what's the purpose of going to uh school like they're in school to satisfy their parents however they Mm. don't see the point of getting this uh college education because they can go they've literally said this to me i can go work a warehouse job and get paid 15 an hour I'm like, well, that's fine when you're in your 20s. When you're in your 30s and you're taking care of a family, I guarantee you that those warehouse people who um, are older would have liked to go to go into school to get a better paying job. And they were, and they asked me, this is what they asked me, well, why don't you have one? Ooh, dang. I can't say anything because <laughs> I can't say anything. It's not like I don't try. I just, you know don't have one right. has not been um at my front door right that's 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 yeah <laughs> that's rough like <laughs> so like uh and so this is working well for you in what way and you have to right. be like, uh, 
I'll Ooh. get there. Just you wait. <laughs> right. Just you wait. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I'm of the generation where I think you still could. I mean, you know, newsrooms or newspapers were thriving. You know, mm-hmm. was, you had expense accounts and, wow. you know, um, they send you to all the, you know, journalism conventions and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like boom days. Newspapers had more money than they knew what to do with. And <laughs> Now, you know, when people ask me to come to career days, I almost feel like saying, you want me to come in there and lie to them babies? Like, <laughs> this, it just feels like fundamentally dishonest to come in and say, you know, pursue this career. Like, I don't know that I could tell my, you know, my niece, um, yeah, follow my path because, yes, yeah, it's, it's tight. It's, it's really tight. Mm-hmm. My sister says I should have been a lawyer. That's what I was intentionally going to school for before I switched to journalism. And she's mm. like, you should have stayed with me because you're <laughs> making money right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, That's you're true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> Nothing, but I've taken my bar. I've taken my uh, LSAT and it's still good for another couple of years. So, there you you never know. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, so um, I guess this can kind of segue us into um, you know, when people a lot of people talk about Memphis, you know, one of the first things that pops up in their head is barbecue and crime. Like I remember when I went to MTSU, <laughs> they said, um, "Have you ever gotten shot at?" And I said, "No, I have not." And they were surprised by that. Um, (laughs) Memphis has a reputation for being a hard place. I mean, there's crime going on. Let's not, let's not deny that fact. There's, there's a lot of crime that goes on in Memphis, but, um, I want us to talk a little bit about this correlation between the poverty rate and the crime, um, the crime rate in Memphis. Um, Wendy, is there a correlation? So. Um, I have not done the research to find, uh, to be able to give you definitively, you know, data about, um, crime and a correlation to, to poverty. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I can say is that it makes sense that people, um, desperate people do desperate things, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, sometimes me and my friend will joke, friends will joke if we hear of somebody getting, you know, taking a thousand dollar bribe for something. And we'll be like, listen, if you hear that I took a bribe, no, it wasn't for $1,000. If I'm going to go down, it's going to have to be for a lot more than that. <laughs> um, and so, but I think that if you were really, really, really struggling, um, you might do something, you know, unethical for $1,000. So I mm-hmm. do think that people who are, um, you know, stretched to the limit will would consider things as options that they wouldn't do if they were um, financially, you know, financially uh, stable, um, economically secure. Um, I think also that um, crime is um, also, it's a, it's a function of environment too, mm-hmm. right? So if you put people in um, overcrowded conditions, they don't have access to um, healthcare, mental healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they are, um, if you think about like even domestic violence, right? And so if you've got a situation where, um, and I'm not saying people assault partners because they're financially stressed, 
Um, but that stress definitely can heighten tensions mm-hmm. you know, in a home or in an, in an environment. Um, and so I was trying to look up this quote as we're, as we're talking about, um, about King. So Dr. King was asked um, during the 60s to denounce um, the riots and, that were breaking out in um, various cities. And it's when he said that um, a riot is the language of the unheard. What he said essentially is that it wouldn't be right for him to stand before you and denounce, um, here it is. Um, he wouldn't you know, feel comfortable standing before crowds and say um, that he denounced um, riots. Um, let's say, okay. So he says, um, profound judgment of today's riots was expressed by Victor Hugo a century ago. He said, if a soul is left in the darkness, sin will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness. Mm. Policymakers of the white society have caused the darkness. They create discrimination. They structured slums. They perpetuate unemployment, ignorance, and poverty. It is incontestable and deplorable that Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. They are born of the greater crimes of the white society. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the king you're not going to hear quoted on Monday, right? Right, of course. Um, on Martin Luther King Day, <laughs> right. you're not going to hear that. But I think that's a pretty, you know, biting critique of structural racism, right? right. And this double standard of um, wanting people of color um, to behave in a way that's moral and ethical and lawful, and I'll put lawful in quotes and, you know, air quotes, um, in a way that the power structure does not have to and has never never had to um, and when bl- yeah go ahead when black people are poor it's a different poor from when from when white people are poor white poverty and black poverty are two different things uh, i remember gandhi said that poverty is the worst form of violence and then you have jimmy dean who said that poverty was the greatest motivator for my life what? Yeah, so two, so two different things. So I think a hungry person is a hungry person regardless of race, right? Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that white people and black people experience hunger differently. I do think what the data indicates is that um, even um, uh, white families who are poor or have low incomes still have more in household wealth or assets yep. than your poor black person, right? And so what you might see is that a poor white family um, may still own land, right? Or they still may own property. Whereas um, black families, even when they do own property, the values of their homes are um, are going to be less than a similar home in a white neighborhood, simply because the black home is in a black neighborhood. Right. So, right. Um, I think in that way, poverty can be um, calculated differently. Um, I think it still sucks to be poor wherever you are. Um, you're white and poor, though, you're still going to have that white privilege. And, you know, the economic elites have always been able to get poor white people to vote against their own self-interest, you know, in favor of race solidarity with that hope that if you, I guess, you know, swear enough allegiance to 
whiteness that maybe one day too you can be rich. You know, I don't, I don't. People I don't actually that believe much. that. People believe that. There are people here who, I just, I, I, it astounds me how some African American people do not know that they're black. Now you notice those two different words that I've used. African American people do not know some of them, especially. My, I guess my family is just crazy. People <laughs> in my family who does not know that he is black. Like the the politics of it all, the racial inequality of it all, they don't see, see it at all. They don't want to see it, and they they can acknowledge it, but then they have this mentality that they have adopted through the years by their white counterparts that says, "Oh, well." You know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you really want it. I mean, I didn't know I was black for the longest. I mean, I knew I was African American, but but it's true because I've been around all those white people, and I was like, you know, they had accepted me, and I was like, okay, I'm one of. They told me I'm one of the good ones, so I'm like, okay. But Mm. all I have to do is I got this good private school education. I'm going to college like the rest of them, even though most of them already had like thousands of dollars waiting for them when they went to college. I had to take out all these loans. And I was like, I'm going to be set. Like these other black people, they just need to work harder, this, that, and the other. When I graduated, I was in the same spot as them. So I I definitely got my workup call in, in high school, and I also got it when I went to, you know, apply for jobs and couldn't get them because I was black. But uh, so how do you know yeah. though that you couldn't get it because you were black? Like, I mean, there, there's, there's, there, they didn't specifically say it, but I do know because the the field that I was in, it's it's more of the um, entertainment type field, like like this, like mass communications type field, and um, you know, I've I've gone to college with people, and we have similar resumes. We have similar experience. I might have more experience than they have. But, you know, when when graduation time came and they applied for jobs, it was just like boom, bang. They they were already in it. Me, my me was my African-American name. Like, I couldn't even get callbacks <laughs> for, for most of this stuff. Now, it wasn't specifically. I don't have any 100% evidence of cameras inside the place where they told me it was because I was black. Right, right. But, um... I wouldn't be surprised if that was a factor in, um, yeah. in that. Well, I think yeah. one of the, the nasty things about um, racism is that you never know, right? Or it's often it's difficult to know, mm-hmm. you know why you're not getting the callbacks or, you know, uh, why other people are seeming to land jobs really quickly, but you still haven't. And I think it can cause self-doubt over time, right? Because you feel like, well, I did everything I was supposed to do, right? I followed the rules. And things aren't still aren't following falling into place um, for me. I think another factor in that, though, can also be the um, power of informal social networks mm-hmm. in um, career mobility, right? So, like all the first jobs I got, um, really probably all of the jobs I've ever gotten have been at hookups, right? Okay. So somebody knew somebody, and they made an introduction. And you know, to be honest, most of those introductions were made by white men on my behalf. Hmm. Um, so I had somebody who would who open the door. So if you come from, you know, an environment where, you know, your dad doesn't know the head of the bank, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, they didn't go to college together. They weren't fraternity brothers. So he can't like make a call and say, hey, my daughter needs an internship. You hook her up. Um, you don't have access to those things. And so like yeah. what you may not be able to see on the outside is all the connections that your you know, college classmates parents had you know yeah exactly. that's true making those introductions that you just not go or your ahead. teachers like, yeah yeah uh, it, at mtsu uh me and gabby attended the same university that's how we know each other we um were in the same field mass communication of my class there was a group of five to ten people who were very tight with their teacher and or with our teachers and those are the people who have jobs. Of my class, there were 25 people in my class, in, in my news three class. Three of those people were black. It was two black women and one black man. However, no black person has a job yeah. in, in, that, in, in that particular field. And I know that that's particularly frustrating to me because my uh, real you know, it's, some things it's not being vain. Like, it's just a fact. My real is better than yours. My, <laughs> I, You know, yeah, I'm not being vain. It's, it's literally, they didn't care about, like, one guy, coolest guy ever. He was a fraternity dude, and he didn't really care about school. He kind of floated by. Mm-hmm. He always texted me asking, well, what do we do? Because he missed class. His reel is made up of literally one story that he's <laughs> coughing in the middle of, mm, but he has a job at one of the same places that, and, and this is what the teacher had the nerve to tell me. He wanted to hold me back because he didn't think I was good enough, yet this guy who's coughing on his reel is... Right. That would be frustrating. And I knew it had something to do with my skin tone because when he sent me, I got a call from my advisor. She said, she just looked at me, took a look at my reel, took a look at my grades, and she said, you are, you are, uh, what did she tell me? She said, you have three things going against you. One, you're black. Two, you're a woman. And three, you're in a male-dominated field. Mm. I'm looking at you now, and I can tell you that there is no reason why you should be held back. You have to get in good with this teacher. You just have to. And she was right. When I, The next day when I came and I, you know, did my little two cents, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I'll do better. And I smiled every day. You know, you have fake it till you make it. Yeah. Uh, and he changed overnight. His position changed overnight. Well, this is one of the most improved students. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sometimes the game that, you know, we have to play. You know? I guess, but it wasn't enough for a recommendation, though. Mm. Can yeah. I, I'm finally here and my, my stuff is finally working. I want to add to kind of what Joy is saying. Um. So I am actually a trainer for a major insurance company. And um, within my job, basically, uh, I was skilled on something else and I was training something else. But uh, there was this girl, a, a black woman, basically, 
uh, who's one of my really good friends now. And she has trained a lot longer than I have. And um, not only that, she definitely knows a lot more than I do know, especially about what we're in. Mm-hmm. And um, we got a new supervisor and the new supervisor basically sat her down and made me, the white woman, uh, the, the trainer of the classes. And to me, it didn't really make any sense. But, like, slowly but surely, I'm realizing, like, this guy is racist, number one, uh, because every black trainer that we had has now been set down, and Ooh. all of the white trainers are still up. So it's like, it's not... I, Joy, what I'm basically saying is, Joy, I see what you're saying. Like, I just wanted to, that's kind of what I wanted to say. And like, didn't I you get your job saying. because you're dead or something? Yeah, and I got the job. Yeah, that's correct. I, they actually denied me at first for getting that job. And then my dad called one of the people uh, who worked there. And uh, my dad knew that lady that worked there. And the lady got me on. Hmm. All because yeah. he knew someone. Yeah. So then my question becomes, what? If you know that you're benefiting from privilege, what do you do? And I don't have the answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, what do you say? You know, do you go to the guy and say, you know, I'm probably not. Have you considered, you know, so-and-so to be the trainer for this? You know, she's pretty capable. Or, I yeah, don't know. So I don't know we, how you, I don't know how people handle that. But I think that's the next step. Right, right. right. You'll be in positions and in rooms likely that, you know, other people, you know, people of color may not be in. And so how do you advocate for them in those spaces in a way that's effective and also doesn't get you kicked out of the rooms, too, right? Because <laughs> sometimes that's what happens when people, you know, try to become accomplices to um, people of color. Exactly. They lose that access as well. Yeah. You shouldn't, like, deny yourself an opportunity, I don't think. However, if there's a chance that she says, that somebody says, hey, we want to bring somebody on board. We're thinking about this guy. You say, I think it would be a great opportunity for her to say, hey, no, I know this one woman who's great. She's this and she's that. I think then is the time to advocate for her because I wouldn't want somebody, you know, to hold me back just because I got the job because they were looking for Black people. <laughs> right. That's not how I would. I mean, I, you know me. I think they think I'm a little kumbaya-ish, but I'm just I, I wouldn't want that and I I don't think it's fair. So Yeah, I ain't gonna tell Katie what not, to think. I guess I'm not mad enough yet. So that would just be my suggestion for people who don't know how to advocate. Like when you're in a position to say, Hey, I can do something about this, then say, Yeah, I recommend this person. So what you yeah. gonna do, Katie? So I have oh, actually, <laughs> I know, like, I'm not trying to put, yeah, I don't put her on a spot. No, I have actually already advocated for the other trainer and I have already went to the supervisor and been like, hey, this trainer is better suited for this. Uh, but I've been denied like three times for this. Like, I do not want to be training these classes. And it's not something <laughs> that I even want to be doing to begin with. Um, so it's almost as if, it's not something that I really have control of. They're just kind of forcing me. So I have tried to advocate advocate for her and said that she is definitely better suited for that. Um, me and her actually had a conversation with him like three days ago about how we feel like he is being terrible and racist and he's setting all the black people down. And 
basically he was like, well, um, I'm going to have to ask somebody about this. And then I had a conversation with his supervisor and then they were like, oh, well, no, you still need to be training that class, not her. And like, I don't really get it, but like, Mm-hmm. I don't really know what to do anymore. I've already asked like four times, so. Right. It gets to a point where you're like, okay, you know, I'm trying to advocate, but I'm also trying to eat, so. Yeah, Casey. So, you guys were talking a little bit earlier about um, Joyce said, I think it was Joyce, you said something about um, Oh, or maybe it was Wendy. I can't remember, basically. But um, <laughs> one of you guys said something about how white people who are poor, they think, basically, that if they continue to advocate for white people in positions of power, that eventually, one day or another, they're going to end up being rich. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, like, that is my mom and stepdad to the point. Like, literally all my life, they have always been poor. We have always been poor all our lives. We, My mom had five girls. We never had anything. Like, literally, we have always been poor. Mm-hmm. But yet, they still voted for Trump. Underneath <laughs> the guy, just because he was white. That was the only thing that mattered to them was that he was white. And so I just wanted to relate back to whoever said that. This... That's interesting, though, going back to that about how these these structures and politicians and stuff have created the the systems in which we have all this poverty and crime. And then they still have the audacity to point the finger like it's their faults or these people's faults that they're in these situations. And then they use that rhetoric to garner up all this these white poor people to think that the problem is these other poor black people that somehow keeping them down. I don't know how that correlates, but they somehow feel that these black and brown people are stopping them from getting ahead in some way. The fact that they can do that is really genius. I don't know how they've gotten that to work, but it's worked. It really is. Like I said, it's if it wasn't happening to my people, it would be an amazing thing to study. Right. There are people who are, yeah, you know, I I don't know if, Miss Wendy, I sit down and I talk with anybody and I'm open to any kind of opinion, especially when when it's somebody that I don't know, I'm less likely to start like getting passionate about what I'm speaking about because I know that I'm just an ear for them. And I have had white coworkers and white friends who tell me, who who try to explain why they voted for Trump and try to explain why they feel that they were cheated out of the, like one day a guy, a white guy tried to hit on me, Mm. but it just went (laughs) left because he started talking about school and scholarships. And I told him, well, I got a scholarship and he's like, well, I'm sure you really deserve that. That's really great. I couldn't get one. Because, you know, a, a, a black person took mine. And I was wow. just like, what? Oh, he's so like, that's no, the that's only it. scenario in which you could fathom that. That's a the black only, only one. Only oh, one. Yeah. And he was like so quick to cover it up. Like, no, wait, wait, not to say you didn't deserve it. But, you know, I, I, that's why they, they told me they had to save spots. Basically, my dad's friend told me that that's why. And he just poured, they... 
people that I know just pour themselves out into why they believe what they believe. And sometimes it's, it's just best not to argue with them and just let them say, see the, see the, see the, the change or the, the, uh, the reason that you want to, uh, express to them in you, because sometimes you can't argue with stupidity. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well, I had a 4.2 GPA. What did you have? And he's like, oh, it was just a 3.2. Well, I deserved my scholarship. Right. <laughs> Did you see that thing on Twitter that said that that girl was like, she was at some camp and she was talking to this boy and she was like, yeah, I'm going to college um, next semester or whatever. And he was like, um, well, yeah, I couldn't afford to because, you know, I'm white and college isn't free for me. Like, there's white people that think that black people go to college for free. And I have never heard that before in my life. But apparently yeah, that's, that's the thing. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really pretty incredible. And, you know, like, I would figure everybody has access to the Googles. And so if you really <laughs> think that, you could, you know, explore whether that, that is true. I mean, I, sometimes I hear things, I see stories online, it'll say something. It's crazy, you know, that somebody white person, some white person did or something. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, no, that don't even sound right. You know, <laughs> and sure enough, I click on the link and it's not. It's been exaggerated or uh-huh. blown out of proportion. And I would think that if someone said, no, all black people can go to college for free, that my common sense, that my critical thinking <laughs> skills would click, you know, kick in and say, that don't even sound right. Like, uh-huh. And then I would do some exploration and be like, oh, yeah, that person was lying. But mm-hmm. I think when you're really wedded to the idea that um, you are owed everything, you know, and this this country was made for you mm-hmm. and the systems and structures should work to your advantage, and often they do, mm-hmm. um, I can absolutely understand how um, any kind of shift toward uh, making this country more equitable would be terrifying to you, right? Yeah. I, I can imagine that maybe you would be Somewhere inside you, you would understand, well, I really maybe haven't worked that hard, or maybe I'm not that bright, or I'm not the best person on the job. And if we have to compete just on the basis of skills, I'm going to lose. Mm, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. What you're I saying think I would is. Fight. Yeah, I would fight for, I would fight to keep what I had, even knowing that I didn't deserve it. Right. Yeah, I think that's the reason a lot of people, majority white and majority white women, voted for Trump. I think that's why, because I think they feel like we're, we're, they feel comfortable enough to say, hey, I worked hard for this. They don't deserve it. Not knowing or not really caring or not taking the time to think because they're comfortable with their own lives and they don't want to think outside their bubble. And sometimes it's, it's really a choice. Racism, I believe, sometimes it's instilled in you. And then sometimes it's a choice. Um, whether or not to say, hey, I know this is not what it seems, but I need to fight for my own reason to survive. And I completely agree with that. But I think that's why some people voted for Trump. But I think that can be correlated to also, um, that can be correlated to racism and also homophobia and classism as well, because uh, straight white men and straight white women, for the most part, think they're the default in this country. And anybody else asking for any type of rights or whatever, that is a, 
an attack on them somehow. Some some gay person asking to be treated as an equal human in society is challenging their Christian evangelical rights to be a Christian in America. But it's, it's just so... It's weird. It's really weird. Like, they, they are so not oppressed that everything is oppression to them. Like, you just saying, right. hi, I'm black, you, you know? <laughs> yeah. What is that? Oh, I can't. I'm not going to get it right. But if you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression, like that might have been how the thing um, went. And, you know, I get that. Like, I can, I can remove myself enough from being black, being a woman, to... To understand that, to mm-hmm. understand where that instinct um, comes from, but I also think that you know we're not socialized or trained or equipped to be uncomfortable, right? And so we mm-hmm. seek to engineer situations in which we're comfortable, which is you know usually the status quo, um, instead of just sitting with that discomfort and saying, "Okay, this is unsettling to me, but why, let me think about why that would be." Right, you know, like what. What's triggering that? You know, um, you know, I can be honest and say, you know, I have always tried to be. Um, I hope I have been um, you know, open to LGBT issues. I definitely, um, you know, affirm that. I believe in marriage equality. Mm-hmm. You know, all that. But you know, the LGBT. I never really thought about much about the T much. You know, I just. Mm. I just never thought about it. It just wasn't something that I, I wasn't meeting people who were trans. It just wasn't coming up. And mm-hmm. so when I started hearing more about like bathroom stuff, I was like, what? Like I just didn't, I had never thought about it. Before. Okay. Uh-huh. So instead of reacting or, you know, parroting back some language I might have heard some other people say, I was like, mm, let me just sit with this and think about it. It wasn't really discomfort. It was more un unfamiliarity mm, you know okay I mean? okay and rather than in, rather than jumping in conversations i just listen right because i need to learn because i don't know yeah and then you listen and you learn and you do some research and you listen and you shut up and you don't jump in conversations they really are <laughs> to get into uh-huh. um and it all makes sense it's like yeah trans you know women should be able to use women bathrooms right right and I don't know what people think we're doing in bathrooms anyway, but I'm not in there like just chatting folk up and <laughs> right. everybody's just doing their business and it's not a threat to me. And then, you know, then I can advocate, um, you know, in spaces that trans people may not be comfortable, mm-hmm. um, you know, having to speak up on their own behalf. But, you know, I have really trained myself over the years and I have worked really hard and I fail probably like four or five times a day <laughs> when I hear something and it makes me uncomfortable to sit okay. with that. And to process that. And I think that's something that we can all, um, we should all try to do. You know, like, it's okay to be unsettled by something. But what about taking the time to try to respond and process mm-hmm. instead of just react, right? Right. So I definitely agree with you, uh, Miss Lindy. So um, I feel like if you are not uncomfortable in a situation, period, whether it is sitting by someone you don't know or doing something that you're not used to doing, then you're never going to learn and you'll never grow as a person. So, like, I completely agree with you 100%. All right. So let's wrap this up with one more question because we, we like to we like to end it on uh, kind of what can we do note. So um, we know that there is a lot of racial wealth inequality and 
all types of stuff and and uh, millennials are encouraged to get into politics because apparently not enough of us are interested in in it um what do y'all think we can do to first of all make make politics more appealing or alluring to millennials and to get them more involved in in politics and stuff I, I, w- I would say that um, I think it's important to vote. I do think we need new blood in politics, that um, just getting people in based on the generation they're a member of isn't enough, right? Mm-hmm. I still want to know what your politics are, Yeah. You know where you stand on issues of economic justice, jobs and wages, living wages, LGBT protections. I want to know all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because somebody who's 70 could perhaps represent um the issues i feel like are important better than somebody who's 25 you know Mm -hmm. um but um again i think it all it all kind of circles back to economics right because it takes money to win elections yeah you need signs and you need a campaign manager and you know if it's like a big election you need people who do polling for you and messaging all that stuff costs money right but Mm -hmm. if people if we're trying to get uh politicians who can better represent marginalized populations or maybe even members of marginalized populations themselves but they don't have the money and the reason marginalized populations don't have the money is because of systemic racism and sexism then it's like it's a huge catch-22 right mm-hmm. um and so uh i think i'm hoping maybe i'm hopeful maybe that um social media and the you know um uh, power of the internet um to democratize things and kind of level the playing field, right? So um, if I tweet something, it can get to uh, a same audience as something you tweet, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I can't buy a higher level of Twitter. Um, I'm hoping that that will help balance out some of those economic things. You know, we can see campaigns like Black Lives Matter or even, you know, Me Too and how they can go viral and how can we, how can we harness that mm-hmm. to, um, put politicians with progressive politics um, into positions where they can, um, you know, advocate for the least of these and change, dismantle the systems and structures that keep poor people poor. Right. I agree. What do y'all think? Um, NBC News did a poll about millennials and politics and how millennials want a third party. It's they said that uh, about seventy one percent. I think they said seventy one percent, or uh, millennials think that there needs to be a third party because the Republicans and the Democrats aren't doing a good job. I think if we, I don't, I know it's just this is gonna sound cookie cutter again, but I think <laughs> it just needs time. You know that I think millennials. I think millennials are are gonna have more power than we realize. I think with all of these um, movements starting, like she said, the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too. I think if we really put really put our focus and our energy into, I think, which I think Trump has. I think Trump has done this. I think he is pushing millennials so far that in the next election, either there will be a Will be, will be decided by the millennials. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Do I think it can move a little bit faster? Yes, but I have hope. Okay, hope yeah, is good, hope, right? Otherwise, 
we just stay under our comforters in front of the space heaters and we never <laughs> we never move or in our closet <laughs> figuratively literally yeah uh what you think kt <laughs> so um if i'm honest i think millennials are pretty involved in politics i think that uh Like, as far as I can see on my feeds, and maybe it's just who I follow, not what I know, but as far as I can see on on all of my social media feeds, like, most of the people that I know are political. Uh, I think the the people that are not political are the ones who are maybe a little bit older than us. Um, Hmm. But at the same time, now that I'm thinking about it, like, Nah, those people are political too. I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I think our best way is to uh, try to be inclusive and try to be understanding of others' situations, others' needs. And um, with that, I feel as if more people will feel more comfortable uh, being able to um, basically go down the politics lane. So to speak. Well, let me ask you this real quick, KT, and call you out. You didn't vote in this upcoming election. <gasps> and <laughs> well, you and, wasted a vote. <laughs> I didn't waste my vote. And so what no, didn't. So what would have made you go out to the polls as a millennial, as a as a millennial white feminist woman? Hmm, great question. Um same thing, inclusivity. Like, I just feel like we need to be more inclusive. Like, I'm so tired of just seeing white people on the stand that either, number one, are out to get my friends, or number two, are uh, for big corporations, uh, or number three, are so effing old, they don't know anything about us. Like... Like, I just feel like what would get me to vote for someone would be someone who was representative of me. Uh, And when I say me, I don't just mean a white woman. I mean someone who is representative of, like, my identity as an LGBT person and my friend's identity as uh, people of color who are also part of the LGBT community. And uh, I just need someone to be advocating for someone or something that I feel as if is important, if that makes sense. Well, what they said, Hillary Clinton was advocating for all that stuff, apparently. No, she wasn't, though. Like, (laughs) if you literally listen to her, like, Hillary was not down. And then, like, her, like, their race is terrible, awful people. Well, there you go. You pick the lesser of two evils right thank you miss wendy thank you oh lord (laughs) i don't feel like i'm getting changed like this is just the same cycle that everyone basically plays into this isn't like any type of change just because you're picking the lesser of two evils it's still evil you know like it's kind of like asking do you want to be stabbed or do you want to be shot in the head like stabbed (laughs) 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 
die from the stabbing? Man, I don't want to die. Stabbing's gonna take a minute to die. I feel like. Well, she didn't ask that though, so if you you know you have to go with KT with with what she asked. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> oh, well, the stabbing because I might. And live, right? you're blocked. You've been blocked now. No. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that people in this election were so focused on there being two bad candidates. And yeah, I agree there were two bad candidates. However, people can't tell, people with common sense now cannot tell me that they don't feel some type of way about Donald Trump being in there in the White House instead of Hillary Clinton. Well, I would never argue that they were equally problematic, right? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think they were. I don't think you can make that a case based on the evidence available. Ever, Um, but you know, some people believe they can. So I'm just talking to those Mm. who believe that they can. Okay. Like I feel like this is shade. (laughs) I don't intend any shade, but no, I'm. Joy did. She always does. I'm sorry. Okay. (sighs) You know what? Just Wendy. Every episode, they always try to to get me to admit to something or try to shade <laughs> me into something. And so now I feel like I have a person who's backed me up about this election. That there were two bad candidates, yes, but there were not equally yoked. So it's all I'm saying. I think that's it. That that's what kind of threw me off, and I think that's that's one of the things that kind of throws some millennials off. I mean, that's probably. I mean, I think that's why Bernie Sanders kind of get a little. You know, he kind of get a wave of people because some people were just like, "Dang, why does it always have to be the lesser of two evils? Why can't we get a candidate that's just like that's decent? Why can't we get a decent candidate? Why does it? I mean, if it's between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I mean, obviously Hillary Clinton is the best candidate but if it was anybody else versus hillary clinton i mean we could have actually have a discussion about it i think people were just upset that we didn't have better choices this uh miss wendy can i ask you a question yes of course uh and i guess it's the last one because i'm I'm sorry i just had a question since we're on this and since i you know i feel slightly better now um (laughs) (laughs) i want to ask do you think people wasted their vote by either voting Ooh. for the third party or not voting at all? So the first thing I would say is that people have the right to do whatever they want to do. Right? Exactly. So choosing mm-hmm. not to vote is a choice that is um, valid. It's not one I would make. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also depends on how high the stakes are, right? And I feel like in the last election, the stakes felt really high. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as we see, you know, as we saw from the outcome, um, especially how it broke down on electoral college lines, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening today that would not have been happening if Hillary Clinton were president. You know, right. would she have been problematic in other ways? The evidence suggests yes. Um, but we wouldn't be worrying about, you know, 800,000 DACA recipients getting kicked out um, right. of the country or... People who are trans in the military wondering if they're going to have to, you know, if they're going to get kicked out Mm -hmm. or, you know, playing chicken with North Korea. I mean, give me a break. (laughs) I wake up in the morning and I look at the news alerts on my phone to make sure, like, am I about to get blown up today? (laughs) Right. Um, So I think you have to consider the the stakes of of an election. And I also think we have to pay attention to things that are, are happening. 
in terms of voting rights, um, redistricting, gerrymandering, they're happening outside of election years, right? And so if you look at voter restrictions in you know, some of the battleground states, had those not been in place, you know, Hillary would likely be in office and we'd be dealing with something else, right? We would be complaining about something, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be some of the things we're complaining about today. So I would never tell somebody what they couldn't do, but I have told guys that I wouldn't date them if they uh, didn't vote. Mm. Been a deal breaker. I believe that too. I'm gonna need you to be part of the part of the solution to try. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well. What? Oh, nothing. Okay. <laughs> okay. But it's okay not to vote. Like that's a choice. That's a. That's yeah. It is. It's your right. right. It's what the social fight for. It was not you. It was not you. It was the question. <laughs> That was asked because I knew where she was going with that. And what her purpose was at the end, she wanted you to be like, right. So in your face, KT and Gabby, like that was, that was the. Yeah, she's not lying. I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the two things to do. I knew what no, she was No, it's doing. not. It's the change. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. It's what people fight for, uh, the right to do or not to do. However, I just wanted somebody Ew. on my side. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, well, this has been a very good discussion. Thank you, Wendy, so much for coming on. We really enjoyed you. It is my pleasure, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, can you it. can you please plug everything you're doing one more time for everybody? We know uh, Martin Luther King Day is going to come out. It's coming out this Monday, and um, yes. this episode will be out the day after. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So my project is MLK 50 justice through journalism. You can find us at MLK 50.com on Twitter at um, MLK 50 Memphis. And you can search MLK 50 and find us on Facebook too. So we appreciate the likes, the follows, retweets, the shares, all of that. Yep. Head on over there and follow her and uh, tell her that we sent you. Oh, yeah, and follow me on Twitter, too. Yes. I like to get down there as well. And on Facebook, um, Wendy C. Thomas, W-E-N-D-I, initial C. Thomas. Whoop, whoop. And while you're at it, don't forget to hit us up. We got a Facebook as well at Talk It Out Podcast and Instagram at Talk It Out Podcast and a Twitter at Talk It Out underscore pod. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Hit us up, add us at Miss Wendy and uh, leave your comments and we'll be sure to respond uh, housekeeping I don't think there's anything uh, remember to visit our website tiopodcast.com slash shop for merch and to listen to our episodes at tiopodcast.com slash episodes this has been your girl Gabby Joy with our special guest, Miss Wendy C. Thomas. And this has been Talk It Out Podcast.